Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Good. Second Corinthians. I might have to abbreviate my comments, which is probably good news for all of you. <laughs> How many of you guys keep a prayer journal? Or maybe a prayer list, maybe it's just a piece of paper in your Bible. I don't do a prayer journal, but I do keep lists. I'm a notorious list maker. I've shown you before, I'm a little card. I make so many lists, I need a thing to hold all of my lists. That's bad, right? I have lists in my Bible of people to pray for. So whenever I go to a prayer meeting or life group and there's prayer requests, write, write them down here at church when people share things, write them down and take those and keep those before the throne. We don't want to just pray for something once and then walk away and it's not there, right? Um, as a community, we support one another, um, not just when we're together, but when we're apart, right? We pray for one another, pray for the burdens that are on the hearts of our <clears throat> brothers and sisters. So I encourage you to do that with the things that were shared today. Second Corinthians 5. Not sure where I want to start. You know the uh, chapters and verses were not in the original Bible. Did you know that? You think that's a silly question. I think I told you the story about this gal I led to Jesus years ago and bought a revival and she was reading the Bible and she's, you know, she's got born again so she's just all excited about the Bible, right? Reading the Bible. Reading the... One day she calls me and says, you know what it says in the Bible? And she, she starts reading this quote to me or whatever. I wanted to move this forward. Oh, whatever. So she starts reading this quote to me from the Bible. I'm like, I don't know that. Like, where is that in the Bible? So she tells me where it is, and I look it up. She's reading the heading of her study Bible, which she thought was inspired. Nope, that's not, that's not inspired. The chapters aren't inspired. The verses aren't inspired. The chapters were developed in the, uh, in, in the English tree of the Bible in about the 12th century, the verses in around the mid-16th century. And so what you get in the Bible is that you're reading, a lot of times, if you're, when you're thinking of concepts, which is your chapters kind of make you think, oh, this is kind of a concept in, you know, grouped together, is that in, in reality, they overlap in a lot of cases. And if, and if we were redoing it today, there'd be um, changes. This passage is a good example. Because when we read chapter 5, a lot of people stop at verse 21, but in reality, the, the flow of the thought goes to chapter 6 through the verse 2 verses. It's really 6-2. That would be a better place to do the cutoff. Where do we want to start, though? That's the problem. Okay, here we go. Let's start at verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, the Lord, of course. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the, my version says, the terror of the Lord. Some versions say the fear of the Lord. Some might say the reverence of the Lord. We persuade men. But we are well uh, known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. 
For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he, God, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you to not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, you'd open my mouth to speak your word, but I pray you'd open our hearts and our minds to understand, embrace, and receive that which your Holy Spirit wishes to say to us today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This passage is so full, as I like to say, the word of God is pregnant. It's always giving birth. And one of the greatest challenges of anybody that teaches the word is not what to say, it's what not to say. Because there's so much there. Um, So in light of the time, I'll abbreviate my comments. Uh, First of all, we see here in this passage Paul's motive for ministry. And there's two motives uh, presented here. One is the fear or terror of the Lord in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, because we realize, as he just says, that we're all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Jesus, realizing that, that all men and women will stand before the Lord and give an account, he understands the, the, the eternal destiny of those that do not know Jesus Christ. The, 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 the terror, the fear, the trembling of the thought of standing before the Lord, unclothed in the righteousness of Jesus, right? Without the benefits of the atonement. And we all know what Jesus said, that, that, that at the final day, they will stand before him, the sheep and the goats, and the, sheeps, the sheep will go into the, the Father's kingdom, and the goats will go into everlasting destruction, So Paul sees people through the lens of eternity. That's why he says we don't regard people according to the flesh, meaning we don't think in a fleshly way. 
We don't think in a, in a, in a materialistic, worldly way. When we look at people, we don't see their status, their wealth, their color. We see a soul heading for eternity. Amen? And there's only two places, according to the Word of God, heaven or hell. So he sees not according to the flesh. He sees people through the eye of faith, through the eye of God's Word. And it, it troubles him. It troubles him to look at people and to realize that their eternal, their eternal destiny is to be separated from God, that they will stand before that judgment seat unclothed with the righteousness of Jesus. But then he says in verse 14, there's another motive. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose from the dead. Now, when he says the love of Christ compels him, he can mean one of two things. He can mean the love of Christ. Because I love Christ, I'm an ambassador. In other words, because I love Christ, I'm doing what I'm doing and declaring the gospel. And that's a possible translation. So he, on the one hand, he fears the Lord in the sense of that he fears what the judgment day will be like for those that don't know Christ, but then he also loves Christ. And so because he loves Jesus, he's compelled to be an ambassador. That's one possible understanding. The other possible understanding is that when he says the love of Christ, he means the love of Christ that is in him for others. In other words, the reason I'm, I'm enduring what I'm enduring, and if you read First and Second Corinthians, these are the books to read to understand how a minister is treated. <laughs> okay? And it's not good. Paul was attacked, slandered, criticized. People were undermining his, his leadership. It, it, was, it was a mess. That's why all throughout this book, he keeps up bringing up this word commend. Do I need to commend myself again? Do I need letters of commendation? He even says it in this passage. We do not commend ourselves. Why? Because his reputation had been torn down by the opponents of the gospel. They were tearing down Paul's reputation, so when he, when he preached to them, people wouldn't listen to him. He says, I'm not going to commend myself to you again. So, what was compelling Paul? Was it love for Jesus or, love, or the love of Jesus? We can't say dogmatically, but I think both. <laughs> Based upon his, his full, all of his epistles, it was both. He endured much because he loved Jesus and he wanted to do what Jesus told him to do. Amen? Amen. You do it because you love Jesus. But also, when you love Jesus and you have a relationship with Jesus, Jesus does things to your heart like it makes you love other people. Okay? And so when other people hurt, you hurt. You weep with those who weep. You rejoice with those who... You, you, you learn sympathy and empathy. And, 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 as, and if you're walking in faith, you, you see you begin to see people in a totally different way. That they have eternal souls. And so I think of the passage where, where Paul is in Athens and it says his, he saw their idolatry. It says his, he was troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit. So Paul 
truly love Jesus Christ, I believe, above all things. When you read Philippians 3, he talks about everything that he lost for Jesus. He lost his social standing. He lost his reputation. He lost everything that, as a good Jewish man, would have been valued. And he lost it because he loved Jesus Christ. Man, we need to be like that, amen? Willing to lose it all for Jesus. But Paul also loved those he ministered to. He wasn't doing it because it was a duty or an obligation. Oh, well, I have to share the gospel. Oh, gosh. Isn't that our attitude sometime? Come on, be honest. Nobody's, you never have that attitude? Come on. It's the truth. It's the truth. We're all that way. I get it. I'm human. I get it. But what we need is we need, to, we need a greater love. We don't need, first of all, a greater love for the lost. We need, first of all, a greater love for Jesus. And as we truly love Christ and our hearts and his heart are, are brought near together, in sympathy and in understanding and in vision than the things that before were duties, they're not duties anymore. He doesn't just say, the love of Christ leads me. He says, the love of Christ compels me. It's a forceful word, okay? It's, it's, it's like Jeremiah when he says, I tried to be quiet, but the word of God in me was like a fire and I had to speak. I had to speak. Don't you ever feel that way? You, you just feel the Holy Spirit in you and the Word of God in you, and you have to speak the truth. You have to share the gospel. You have to address someone with truth, even though you know they may not like it. They might be offended. You're not trying to offend them. You're actually being compelled by love to speak the truth. So Paul was ministering out of the, reality, the eternal reality of the judgment seat and the internal reality of the love of Jesus. These two things. And so that, those were his motives. Now he talks about his message. What was the message he was, he was declaring? Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This, this, this is often referred to as a verse about the new birth, which I think is a, an appropriate application, but it's bigger than that. When Jesus saves someone, they are made new on the inside, amen? The Holy Spirit comes in, they receive new life. They go from a, a literal, not a figurative, a literal condition of death. Now, it's not physical, but it's literal, it's real, of spiritual death and darkness, and they're transferred in the kingdom of God's dear Son, and they're made alive in Christ. They have eternal life now dwelling in them. Not just eternal life as something waiting for them later, it's eternal life that enters into them now when the Spirit enters their heart. And they're born again, they're changed. Many of you have experienced that transformation. Some of you have experienced it in such a way that it was radical. Anybody have a radical conversion? Just one person? Two? 
from death to life. What could be more radical? Amen? What more extreme from going from death to life? But, but the work of Jesus was, is bigger than the internal change. Paul says all things are new, not just for the individual, but all things are new. Like, wait a minute. The world doesn't look that new to me. Seeing tragedies, hurricanes, shootings, doesn't look that new to me. What's new is there's been a radical fundamental change in God's relationship to the world through the work of Jesus Christ. There's been a fundamental alteration, if you will, between God and man because of the work of Jesus Christ. What is that alteration? He tells us, 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not impeding their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This word reconciliation here um, is a word that deals with the problem of hostility or enmity. Have you ever had an argument with anybody? It's not a trick question. Raise your hand. Okay. Right. So when you have an argument with somebody and you're arguing or you're, maybe you're done arguing, but you haven't resolved the argument, you are in a condition of what's called enmity in the Bible. Hostility. Okay. There's, there's, a, there's a break in the relationship there's a barrier between you and them. Now, a lot of people get into trouble. So see, here's my two minutes of marriage counseling. You ready? <laughs> here's how couples get into trouble. They have a breach, a break. They have an argument. Well, it could be anything from something about the kids to money to who, you know, people argue about all kinds of stuff, right? And then they separate, meaning, you know, they, they argue and they're both... And maybe they talk and, you know, maybe they yell. Um, but they don't resolve it. They never really deal. And so a lot of times what happens is couples will have an argument and they kind of just, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go cut the grass and I'm going to go work out and I'm going to go do this and blow off some steam and I'm going to go take a drive. I'm going to watch TV, whatever. And then people calm down and they just go on with their life. But the, but the problem with that is there wasn't reconciliation. The hostility, meaning the emotional hostility, may be gone at that point. But the problem is still there. The barrier is still there. And so it's like, it's like putting a brick between you and your spouse. And if that becomes the pattern of your relationship, you put another brick and another brick. And if you put enough bricks together, what are you building? A wall, a huge wall, right? I've had people walk into my office and say, I, we need marriage counseling because I want to divorce him. <laughs> and I'm like, how long have you been building that wall? That doesn't happen in a day, right? It's, it's the ongoing lack of resolution in a relationship where this wall is built up. So... People often, you know, married couples will call a truce, but the, the difference between a truce and peace is that a truce is between two hostile groups that aren't fighting. 
Peace, that's two allies. Right? Huge difference. All right, that was my marriage counseling. Is that helpful? <laughs> but that applies to our relationship with God, too. Right? So because of our sin, we built this huge wall between us and God. And the scripture says that, and this surprises many people, but when you read scripture, the idea of conflict between God and man, or hostility between God and man, it's not just that God hates sin, which the Bible says, but the word of God says that man hates God. It hates his law. The flesh has enmity, it says in Romans 8, against God's law. The law repels us, our flesh. Even God's holiness, which should cause us to adore him and bow down to him, that in the flesh it repels us. So there's this hostility, mutual hostility between God and man. And the word reconciliation literally means to exchange or to change. That's what the word means at its root, to change. So to go from a condition of hostility, mutual hostility, to a condition of becoming allies, becoming friends, if you will. That's what reconciliation is really about, a change or exchange from one state or condition into another state or condition. So to the work of Jesus, God has removed on his part the barrier between God and man. Now God, though he is holy, is able to extend his love and mercy and grace to those who do not deserve it without violating his holy law and his holy character. Because before the work of Jesus, or should I say not before, because that's apart from the work of Jesus, a holy God cannot accept sinful people into his presence because it would violate his own character, his own holiness. So he has to deal with sin. We often think today that love means ignoring sin. That is not God's love. God's love is dealing with sin. Deal with the sin. And so God deals with the sin of man in the person of Jesus. So he says here in in verse 21, notice, He, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is, this is the change. This is another aspect of reconciliation, the change or exchange of righteousness and sin. And so I'll illustrate it here. So, uh, says here in verse 20, God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So, so Reverently, this is Jesus, okay? Illustration. Jesus is, has no sin. Him who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. He was perfect God and perfect man. Okay? No sin. God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, here's us. And I wanted to intentionally use this as a sin illustration because this is the Liberty Handbook. You get it? Get it? Us. God has made him who knew no sin, none. Why does no? To be sin for us. So here's us. 
Sin, Jesus, pure. So Jesus has made sin for us, but we're not done. What else does it say? Read it to me, somebody. Check it out. Check it out. He gets our sin. What do we get? His righteousness. You can, let's give it up for Jesus. Right? That's what the word, that's what the word imputing or imputation means. He reckons to our account. So my sins are imputed or reckoned to Jesus, but, but that's not good enough. I can't stand there naked. Remember the parable of the, of the guy going to the feast without the, the, the marriage robe on? It's not enough. We need the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus takes our sin on the cross. When we put our faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to us because I stand in Christ. His righteousness is imputed to me. I, when I stand before God, this is what he sees, not this. That's why I can come to a holy God. Even in prayer, we're coming to a holy God. How can, an, yeah, yeah, we sin, but our sins aren't being imputed to us because they're imputed to Jesus. So I come to God like this. He, he says we're accepted in the beloved. Amen? Amen? Accepted in the beloved. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he wanted to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness, which was of the law, but the, but the righteousness of God, meaning the righteousness that God gives. It's this righteousness. If, 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 if this is you, is this you? I wish I was that skinny. No. This, this is you, right? And this is Jesus and his righteousness. I'm in him. Do you see me? Do you see me? What do you see? Jesus, what do you see? Jesus, what do you see? Jesus! That's why we can come to God. We can stand in his presence. That's why we're going to be in heaven. That's why we're going to, we're, we're, we'll ever live with him because he has removed the sin and given us, imputed us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That, and it doesn't begin when we die. It begins the moment we put our faith in Jesus because then all things become new. A radical change in our relationship. We are reconciled to God. Now, some people don't like the atonement. I, I really like that pen, so I'm going to get it back. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, this is a backsliding Christian. I want to get out of Jesus. I want to get out of Jesus. I, feel, I, I don't know. I'm going to feel kind of, kind of suffocated in there. I want to get out of that, that Jesus. I shouldn't joke about that. Where was I? What was I saying? Jesus. That's all we need to say. Okay, Jesus, sermon's over. Any, any questions? Okay, let me conclude. Um, I'm not going to talk about our ministry. I want to go to verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. And then maybe at a later date I'll come back to, to other things that are here that are so good. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now 
is the accepted time. Behold, now, now is the day of salvation. It's so striking that I, that I felt impressed to speak on this passage today, especially in light of uh, what we prayed about some who have received the grace of God in vain. Because some of the people that we've been praying for today, and, and, and I could add, add others, have known the grace of God, and we assume known it experientially, but have certainly known it through the word, through the teaching and preaching of the word, because some of them have sat here, and they've heard, and they've professed, and they've confessed that they know and walk in the grace of God, and yet now we're seeing a great uh, backsliding, if you will, amongst many evangelicals. So it is possible to receive the grace of God in vain, according to Paul. And that's why this explains why, if you think about it, why would Paul be telling Christians to be reconciled to God? Because if they're really Christians, they are reconciled to God. Yes. Right? It's kind of part of the definition. Well, because Paul realizes he's dealing with the mixed multitude. He's dealing with people uh, in this church who are professing Christianity, but either by their life or by their doctrine were displaying evidence that they were not. And we know in, in Corinth there were, there were sexual problems, sexual immorality was a, was a big problem. We know they had doctrinal problems, some of them denied, denying the resurrection. So he, he's seeing the things in the church, and so he's pleading with them. And I guess you could say to a Christian, hey, be reconciled to God if they're really a Christian because they're in a hostile state at a given point. So that may also be in Paul's mind. But when he talks about receiving the grace of God in vain, usually that means someone has, has heard the grace, professed to know the grace, but in fact they don't know the grace. Vain in Scripture, your version may be different, usually means empty or void. There's no reality there. So it appeared real, but it wasn't real because it was vain or empty. So when we, when we hear the gospel, when we hear the grace, he's exhorting us not to receive it in vain, to receive it truly, to embrace it truly in one's heart. And he urges them to do it, and he says, Behold, now, in verse 2, 6-2, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let me conclude with this. Uh, no one that went to the concert the other night in Las Vegas thought they would die that night. This is how it goes. This is how it goes. The gospel is offered. People think about it. They delay. They pause. They're not sure. They don't want to commit. They, you know, they, they have... And then it ends up it's too late. It's too late. When the gospel is offered, that's the time. That's the time, amen? Now's the time. With the hurricanes and the shootings, we're just talking a couple, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people die, and that doesn't include people that die by, by, by normal mortality and other lesser incidents that aren't making the headlines. And so we're surrounded by, by mortality and the shortness of life, the uncertainty of life. 
It's around us all the time. It confronts us every day. And yet somehow we think that later is okay. Listen, I actually try to think about my death. And you might think that's morbid. But it's not morbid. What, if I'm on my deathbed, what am I going to look back on? What am I going to say I wish I had done? What am I going to say I wish I hadn't done? Because to think of your mortality is to think like Paul's thinking. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's real. Eternity is real. My judgment's real. The judgment of, of people I know and love is real. And so Paul is pleading with them to to be reconciled now. Stop waiting. Stop delaying. These are people that had heard the gospel. These are people that that Paul had, had been ministering to. And they were delaying. There's one thing we can be sure of. One thing we can be certain of. That is that we all eventually die and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You know the old joke, you know, there's only two things that we all know, death and taxes, right? Well, I don't know about the taxes, but I know about the death part. Because it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So it's in Hebrews. So there's two appeals. One, those of us that truly are reconciled, we're co-workers with the Lord in this ministry. And now is the time. Now is the time to share the gospel of Christ. Time is running out for people. Now is the time. Secondly, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you came in, came in not knowing Christ. Maybe you came in just, I don't know, because I don't, I don't know anybody's heart. Maybe you've heard the gospel for years and never actually received Jesus. You've been receiving the grace of God in vain. I don't know. But God says to you today, now is the time. I, listen, I understand resisting the gospel because when it was being preached to me, I was resisting. I understood the gospel. I realized this recently. I understood the gospel way before I accepted the gospel. Because when I understood the gospel, intellectually, I began to count the cost <laughs> of really committing. And I, would, and, I would, and I would realize, oh, I made these friends, or I may be identified with these weird Christian groups, or I, you know, this or that, this, and I would think through these things. And I didn't realize it then, but in a way, I was counting the cost. But the point I'm making is I was delaying Okay, I was delaying. And God forbid, but, but from the moment, from the time that the gospel was clearly shared to me the first time to, to when I got saved, it was probably at least a year. And God forbid, what if, what if I had died in that time? Knowing the gospel, but not really embracing it. You talk about a tragedy. That's what's called missing heaven by 18 inches. You know it here, but it's not real here. Man, God is so good. 
so gracious, so kind, but our mortality is real. And I wish for all of us a long and healthy life. But I know people. I have lost friends. I lost friends for us 20. I lost friends that never saw 40. I lost friends that didn't make it to 50. We don't know. Which is why Paul is saying, now, stop delaying. Let's stand and pray. Power heads. The I just want to give you all a moment. To, we prayed corp, corporately and publicly today, but I want to give you just a moment to pray privately. Even though you're in a public place, you can just talk to the Lord. You want to know, you need to solidify your decision. There's no guarantees on tomorrow. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ came and took your sin upon him that you might receive the righteousness of his perfect life, death, and resurrection. That all your sins would be forgiven and removed. That you would be right before God. That you would be able to have a relationship with God. That you would be made new through the gift of his Holy Spirit to you. And much, much more that he wants to give you. But you must be reconciled. You must lay down, lay down your hostility and your resistance and put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in him as the one who died and rose on your behalf. Will you decide today? Because today is the day of salvation. Take a moment and talk to God. Talk to Jesus. Say yes to him. I believe in you, Jesus. I thank you for dying for me and rising from the dead. I thank you for giving me, me your righteousness. Dear Lord, we thank you for your presence here. And we thank you for your incomparable work on the cross we can only barely understand what you really did. But we thank you for taking our sins. We thank you for giving us your righteousness. We thank you that for us, in our relationship with you and the Father, all things have been made new. I pray, Lord, that none here would receive your grace in vain, but truly receive you and your grace. Truly be born again. Truly be reconciled. And we ask it, Lord, for your glory and your name. And we pray in that holy name of Jesus. Amen.